All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckologians? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. This is my podcast. My podcast? This is my podcast. You know, make a little cash, but this is my podcast. My podcast. WTF is what it's called. Did you tune in for the right one? Thank you. Thank you for being here. What's going on? I, um, sorry, I'm a little elated, kind of. I, I'm going... I'm going, there's a couple ways I'm going. You know, like there's part of me that's excited because uh, impeachment is underway. It's very exciting because, you know, not that we're going to get this scumbag out of office, but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe some of the more um, dug in kind of brain fucked people will uh, will see that he's a he's a major piece of garbage. But I doubt it. I doubt it. And right there, I don't mean to get political. I believe I'm being objective. I don't believe I'm being partisan. I believe I'm being logical. I believe I'm being an observant person. There is no doubt, public or private, this man who is our president is one of the worst people that's ever lived. Truly, truly. But also a spectacle and a prime example of beautiful narcissistic hucksterism that could only come to be in this great land of ours. So it's it cuts both ways. You know, there is something profoundly American and amazing about the corrupt, hustling, con man, grifter, full on narcissist dude that our president is and and also how horrible he is. Hey, man, he goes to where the love is, right? He goes to where the love is and the, the, the love is coming from monsters. And also spare me the email saying like, hey, man, you're you're dividing your audience. Am I, though? Am I really? Look, we'll see what happens. It's just going to be exciting to see him preoccupied with this shit for a year and a half. Anyway, I'm, can I get a few laughs? Can I get a little bit of schadenfreude uh, chuckles? Can I get a little of the appreciating the pain of others when it's that guy, the king of laughing at pain of others? The king of causing horrendous anger and pain in others and just loving every second of it. Can't we have it too? A little bit. Anyway, tomorrow is my birthday. I'm going to be 56 years old, which is astounding. It's not a big birthday, but it is a, you know, it's getting up there, right? It's hard for me to know. It's hard for me to tell. I don't have children, so I don't see that happening. I've got cats who are aging, but it's not the same. My parents are still alive, so I don't really feel it, but I know 56 is big. I know it's uh, it's not 60, but I have this, I have a theory about these, these junctures and people's ages. Like, I think if you make it past 23, if you, there, it gets a little dicey between 23 and 27. If you make it through that, you're going to live into your thirties. All right. And then this is just theories I have. And then late thirties from 38 to 41 that's like that's a, a gray things can happen in there and then uh, 49 to 53 not a little dicey but once you make it to 56 you're probably going to get into 60 i don't know what what this theory is based on i just know that maybe there's stats on it i just know that in the 20s when people go down it's around between 23 and 27 28 and in their 30s when people go down it's between you know 36 and 39 I'm speculating. Maybe it's just my little theory, but I think if I make it through till tomorrow, I might be good for a couple of years, but I don't know. Wouldn't it be sad if I didn't? And then you could play this back and be like, he wasn't right, but it's my birthday tomorrow.
Can you fucking believe it? Now, my guest today on the show is Jeannie Gaffigan. That's Jim Gaffigan's wife, has written a, a, a beautiful book about her brain tumor. Yeah, it's called When Life Gives You Pears, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. It comes out next Tuesday, October 1st, and you can pre-order it now. And uh, Jeannie had a huge brain tumor in her head, and she didn't know it, and she found out about it, and she was a little negligent, which we talk about, but they got it out of there, and she's on the, uh, she's she's bouncing back. They got a pear-sized brain tumor out of her fucking head, and she's 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 okay, and she's here to talk about it and write a book about it. Man, you know, it, you a lot of us, myself included, are hypochondriacs or always think there's something wrong. And this is a woman who didn't really know there was something wrong. And even when there were signs of it, she didn't follow through on. She didn't. She didn't follow up on the signs, and she waited. It's kind of a harrowing tale. But uh, I was excited to talk to her. I'd met her many times over the years because of Jim, and and uh, this was just a genie solo with her stuff, with her book, with her great tale of survival. Now, I do have these two old Masonic texts that I think I'm going to get into a little bit. There's a couple things on my plate that are going to start happening, okay? One of them is I'm going to watch a few Marvel movies and see what happens and reflect with you. And another thing is I'm going to do some Masonic research and hopefully not fall back down into that rabbit hole. I did get an email from a guy that framed the Marvel thing in a, in a kind of a nice way, a guy named Bill, self-parenting in the subject line. My parents weren't that great either. I was super lucky to have teachers and coaches to fill the void and, and pre-third grade something else. I gave it up in third grade because I decided that I was too old for it. I'm 50 now. His name is Stanley Martin Lieber, known as Stan Lee. He was also one of those teachers, coaches, etc., that filled in as a parent. But at the age of nine, I decided that I was too cool for comics. Stan's message from when I was young stuck with me even when I abandoned his medium. So imagine all that. A music star, a comic star, someone that you abandoned because you had outgrown them, and then the world turns and their stories take a second pass. Imagine the thrill of truths that you dismissed as uncool becoming mainstream, or just the thrill of those messengers becoming thrilling to new generations. I'm not a nerd for this. I'm just a 50-year-old dude that gets chills when he sees his childhood heroes come to life on the big screen and have the worthy message laid down by a dude named Stan. Hmm. That's kind of an interesting take on it. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. So, going to be 56 tomorrow if I make it through tonight. I'm planning on it. Man, I'm off the nicotine now for a month and a few days. A month and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four or five days. And I got to tell you, man, I don't feel that much better. You know, I'm, I'm happy to be out from under it, but like I wake up, still wake up groggy, still don't feel good. And I'm getting doughy because my metabolism has shifted. And that's always why I drift back. And also a little depressed. I forget that when you're eating like a shit ton of nicotine all day long, that uh, gets you, keeps your dopamine just kind of buzzing, just kind of humming along. 
And now without it, like I have moments of dark reflection and, and hours of sadness and, uh, and, 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 and maybe, maybe minutes of hopelessness. I, yeah, I had some of those before, but it just feels like, man, it, there are moments where I'm like, am I in this or am I, can I just will my way out of it? See, that's where I would do the nicotine. Why will your way out of it when you can just keep percolating, get that thing, get that thing uh, kind of bubbling, keep it, keep it going, get, keep the hum going. No, the hum is not going and I'm getting lardy. Fucking fuck. Anyway, I'll stick with it. I'm going to try to, you know, try to work with this metabolism that is offered to me. I got an email from a guy. This is why I said this at the top of the show. What the fuck, Elogian? And I look, man, he says, dear Mr. Marin, I write you a few steps from the Pantheon in Rome, which is also a Catholic church. As I'm listening to your remarks on Italian churches and their glamorous and monumental seductions. A few days ago, you remarked on how you're turning to a fascination with water and rocks now and how maybe that's all you need. As you spoke, I thought of George Harrison. I believe it is in the Scorsese documentary of Harrison where Harrison's son, Donnie, says that at some point all George wanted to do was move earth around outside in his yard, here and there, sculpting spaces, close to natural, elemental realities. Harrison cast himself ever further from a church heritage that he came to think of as too small for him. I feel you are a kindred spirit in the great midlife or post-midlife rethink that some of us are fortunate to experience. But who are your mentors in that, brother? I'd love to know to whom you're looking. I believe it was about eight years ago that you gave a shout out to the what the fuck elogians more than ever. That probably describes the theology that I do full of equal measures of wonder and disbelief. A fellow traveler, Tom, a professor of religion, mind you, who are my mentors? Who are my people? Who do I look to for my spiritual guidance? I don't have any, man. I don't have any, but I get it. I get the Zen. I get the, I get the universal hum. I get the frequencies. I get the layers, man. I get the universal consciousness possibilities. I get the sort of things that transcend serendipity. Synchronicities is what I'm talking about. I've investigated that stuff. Sometimes it's proportionate. Sometimes coincidences are just coincidences because you are swimming in circles usually in your life. You move through the same grids over and over again. And the possibility of engaging in serendipitous, synchronistic kind of moments, you know, happens. But why explain it? I've always been open to the poetry of things, but I've always been sort of also compelled and driven to the edge of the Pacific Northwest there's some part of my brain that was sort of programmed when I lived in Alaska, when I was 1969, I was six years old, something about the weight of the world that you feel in the sky up there. And for some reason, I feel some of that when I go to Ireland, when I'm, when I'm on the beach, when there's a certain type of rock. I'm not a laying the beach and sweat type of dude. I don't like looking at the flat horizon from a beach with the smell of sunblock on my face, just looking at like, look at man, look at all that water. It just goes off. And you can't see the end of it. That does nothing for me. But if I'm on the top of a craggy cliff where there's green and just breaking water and there's heavy gray skies, maybe a crispness in the air, I feel like I can live in that moment forever, man. That's just poetry. I got no expectations from any almighty. I'm no spiritual searcher. I don't go into synagogues or temples or mosques, you know, looking for something. I can feel the hum in there. I can feel the space. I know why it's electrified. I know what the power of prayer can do and the sort of um, 
residue it leads on the spaces where it happens. I understand that human beings, when they're humbled, you know, create a certain kind of juice that uh, that fills the air with a kind of hope. I get all that. I'm not looking for that. I don't know if that's communicating or conversing with God, but I feel it and I know it. You understand what I'm saying? I got no mentors in this shit. I just like standing on a cliff and looking out at the craggy rocks in a crisp day with little spots of green behind me. Maybe I don't have to be too high in a cliff. I could be at the bottom of the cliff, but just as long as the rocks are there around me and I can see the water and I can see it, you know, a little rough, a little crisp, a little gray on the skyline. I don't know what it's all about, though. Water's rising, man. High water everywhere. That's what Bob said. So that's the trouble. But I don't know. I'm going to get in under the wire to the great unknown. Dig it. This is an amazing journey that we're about to embark on with uh, Jeannie Gaffigan, who uh, has written a book about her brain tumor called When Life Gives You Pears, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People. Comes out next Tuesday, October 1st. You can pre-order it now. And this is me talking to uh, Jeannie about her pear-sized brain tumor that she survived. What were you going to tell me? The last time we did your podcast. Yeah. Or maybe the time Jim did it. Anyway, at some point, we got a mug with a cat on it. Yes. That is like the most popular mug in my office. So everyone always wants that mug. With the cat in my face, the three yes. cats in my face. Yeah, yeah. it's an amazing okay. mug. Yeah, it's like the it's like it's yeah, like a are... piece of art. Yeah, yeah, I have it more. It really shouldn't be, you know, used for mm-hmm. drinking because it should be like on a mantle or something. I guess, but those are but but the, the weird thing about pottery is that um, you know it's a practical art form. You should be able to use it. It's functional, and uh, even though it's a one of a kind thing, you should enjoy it and drink out of it. Do you need another one? Is that what you're telling me? I, I kind of am because <laughs> there, I really feel like every time I go back to the office, I'm not going to see that yeah. mug because people come in and out and work and yeah. every once in a while, I'm like, where's the Marin mug? I, it's gone. I will give you another one. I have more. I don't. That one's probably, there's been different editions of them. They're all kind of look different. Like I imagine the one you have is kind of like this one. Yes. It is? Well, so I think the ones now... They're similar, but they're they, he changes up the style a little bit. But I'll I'll set you up with one. I have a vintage edition. You do, you do. The, yeah, there's been many different editions. So it's very popular around the office. Well, good. And where's the office in New York? It's in New York. Yeah. This is now. This is your office, or you and Jim's office, or the mine and Jim's office. The Gaffigan Industries. Yeah, the Gaffigan. Gaffigan. It's the, called Chimichanga Productions. Is it Chimichanga Productions? Yes. yes, it is. And your and your position there is what the runner of things. Oh, my position? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the runner of things. <laughs> yeah. And sock picker-upper. Oh, really? Yeah, Jim takes his socks off under the desk. Is, like, oh. I just, like, just take them off and put them, like, next to the desk. But, this, but them... this is at the office, though. Is the office in your house? It's in our It's in our house, yeah. It's in, it's like we have, it. it's, like, attached to our house. Right. You so guys have a building, as, basically. Well, we have... A apartment on a floor of a building yeah. and on the same floor is the office and there's a door that goes into our house so okay. it's like in our house it's right. not quite as in a room right but you have people working in the office yes so there's they come in the house too or they come just... in the office door okay 
All right. But they can come in the house, house too. We don't usually have people that I wouldn't trust to be in the house yeah. working in the office. Right. So now what what's going on with your, like, I know that the book, uh, When Life Gives You Pears, which we now have established as a pear-shaped tumor in your head. Yes. In your head. Not anymore. It's gone. It's gone. Now, where are you? Yeah, I mean, you've written this book. It's been, how long ago did they remove the thing? In April of 2017. Okay, a couple years ago, yeah, two and a so half years ago. The recovery was yeah. pretty bad yeah, from it, but right. the surgery itself was amazingly success, successful. But well, you can see I, I'm still kind of affected by the residual. Sure, I, I know. I mean, I was sort of surprised, but I mean, let's go, let's go back because like the last time, I can't, I mean, I saw you and Jim back when I was in New York, we recorded one, the two of you, right? And yes. then Jim came in here by himself, I think, somewhere along the well, line. Well, I right? also came here with Jim in your garage. You were in the garage, yeah. too. So mm-hmm. you guys have really, I guess Jim's been on it three times, maybe. Uh, oh, one time I think I interviewed the two of you at Air America, when I was at Air America, probably. I can't remember where where the two of us, I remember it was in New York, though, right? Do you remember? I'm the wrong person to ask, because I had <laughs> brain surgery. I, I mean, that's, I mean, I know okay. you're jealous Either. of that excuse, but- that's my excuse. Either way, we've met several times, usually with Jim and the two of you is on the show. And then I met you before back in the day in New York at some point. Yeah, that I probably don't, That I probably don't remember. Do you remember? Of course. <laughs> uh, that I remember. What I remember. do you remember? I remember seeing you all the time. Yeah. And I remember that you and Jim had this like fake competition going for a while back in like the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah. Like you would just like do these like gags to each other all the time. Yeah. That's what I remember. Busting each other's balls. Yes. Me and Gaffigan. Yes. Back when we were kids. Back in New York in yeah. the day. How um like how long when did you meet Jim? I met Jim in April of 2000. Mm-hmm. So a long time ago. Yeah. And you were also but you were like I I just want to sort of set this cuz we've talked about this before but now since I've talked to you both it's sort of been established that uh, you not only are you married to Jim, but you guys are writing partners, your production partners, and initially, you know, you were you were performing as well. Um, initially, I was on stage doing acting, and Jim was a stand-up, and yeah. I didn't know anything about stand-up. You I, weren't you weren't doing improv or anything. I was doing, doing improv. I right. absolutely was doing improv, but I was not in the stand-up world at all. Yeah. But my paths my path crossed with Jim at one of those like shows in New York at like you know. Boston yeah. Comedy Club or sure. something where they had sketch and stand up yeah. and whatever. Right. But the whole thing was is Jim lived on my block. Oh. And so and he like <laughs> so you stood saw out like a sore thumb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I would pass him all the, the time. The doughy white guy. Doughy white guy. Very white guy. Stood yeah. out like a pale thumb. Yeah. And I would pass him all the time. And, you know, after you pass someone in New York all the time, they're like, hello, hello, you right. know. Right. And it's just Familiar. weird not to. Yeah, yeah. It's weird not to like acknowledge. Yeah. So, um, essentially, then I saw him at a stand-up club, and he was really good. Like, yeah. he was, like, really, really funny. And I was in a sketch group. And um, when I ran into him on the street, I said, hey, I saw you. You're a stand-up comedian. Yeah. Like, he wasn't, like, on TV or anything like that. Right. But he was, like, very clearly a <laughs> very funny comedian. Well, he was he was doing a little TV by, by then, 2000, probably. Yeah, I think yeah. he might have just recorded his half-hour yeah. Comedy Central. That makes sense. But yeah. I wasn't a... You didn't watch him, I, right. It's like I didn't really know the stand-up mm-hmm. world. Like, mm-hmm. he asked me who my favorite uh, 
comedian was, and yeah. I said, oh, the Monty Python guys. Yeah, that's good. No, that's and, I, you know, I, it's like I just wasn't in that world sure. yet. So then um, – I actually, I tell this whole story in my book, so I don't want to give away any like spoilers. But well, the, uh, the spoiler is that you you don't die of cancer. Right, that's <laughs> the end. So anyway, thanks the for having of- me on. <laughs> well, I mean, you can tell the stories. It's different when you read a story and tell a story. Yes. Well, what I'm saying is, yeah. is that Jim and I, you know, we clicked. Yeah. But we started working on each other's things. So he, at that point got his first uh, sitcom, yeah, which was called Welcome to New York. Oh, and yeah. it was back, you know, he did an appearance on Letterman, his first appearance on Letterman. So was the deal with Worldwide Pants? Yes. And, okay. And they saw him on Letterman, yeah. and um, I think Rob Burnett yeah. came up to him afterwards and said, you know, we want to do a show based on your comedy. It was like the dream come true. Sure. So meanwhile, Jim and I... Uh, you know, started dating, and this happened very early on. And uh-huh. he was like, "I they want me to do acting, and I'm not an actor. I'm a stand-up comedian. And I said, well, I'm an actor, so yeah. I'd be happy to, you know, run through the scenes with you and everything like that. So that started us, like, working together. And Because he, he's a pretty good actor. He's amazing. And you know, I, he's right away, I was like, you're natural. You're natural. I just saw him in that weird one with the, the Hill people, with the Goggins. Uh, with Walton Goggins, the 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 Pentecostal. Oh, the snake candler one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that called? Yeah, oh, please. Okay. Oh, right. I'm sorry. You have, you have them you that have... follow. It's called them, them that follow. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I liked it. I talked to they, Goggins. Look, I'm about still quick. I'm you still did quick. it. Yeah, I couldn't I remember it. it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you start working together primarily as, uh, you know, helping him act. Yes. And yeah. what happened was is that R- Rich Voss did yeah. his a CD. Yeah. He produced his own CD. Rich Voss did. Rich Voss did. And yeah. Jim got Rich Voss's CD and came to me and said, do you think you could help me make one of these for myself? I mean, this is how long ago this was. Yeah. And I said, sure, I could figure it out. Yeah. So I started going around with Jim to all the clubs and listening to the set. Yeah. And making him a CD. So in that, because I was a producer at the time. I produced theater. I produced stuff. Sure. And... um. But, you know, small time. Right. So because of that, I really got to know his act. And I started saying, you know, this time, what if you tagged it like this? And he was very resistant. You know, of course. How, I'm sure you would okay. be. I just got resistant when you told me that. But I, look, I'm, <laughs> it's very, it's a very insular, you know, singular art. Well, some cats are like, you know, open to it. Like I, when people tell me things, I'll, I'll, I'll hear it. And I've used some. You know, if someone says you, you could tag it with that, I'll take it. But. I mean, now I know that when someone pitches something to you, chances are you thought of that and have moved on in several versions. Mm. And sometimes it's a brand new idea. Yeah. But this was more like he was more open to it because I was kind of honing. Like, so basically, I'd say last time you said the the manatee this way, right? And it was funnier because I was in the audience. And I they got a bit better reaction. Yeah. So it was that kind of right co- collaboration. Yeah. And then after like few years of that it became more like you know how jim like will take a subject like you know bacon or something and just hammer it for like <laughs> yeah 20 minutes sure so when you have someone else there so it's he's known like, for it. what else about bacon what else about bacon sure. what else about bacon he's you know, known for hammering food items yes <laughs> and he but he'll go after like a 
a, a mug uh, for half an hour. <laughs> sure. So it, that kind of like observational comedy kind of lends itself to kind of a back and forth. Sure. And so the way in for me, which I wasn't like trying, but it was like he was very resistant to me. Like, you know, it'd be funny. You should do something about cats. Like he'd be like, no, nah, yeah, I'm good. But it was more like within the point of view. Sure, but like, but you're just dating at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing that you know you 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 hung in there. He must have really loved you because. Well, he... here's the thing. I must have really loved him. Come on. <laughs> but well, the other thing was is okay, that okay. it was like I the first time that he used one of my jokes. It yeah. was on Craig Kilborn used to do the late yeah. late show. Remember that? Yep. And I kind of. I didn't even really pitch him a joke. I just said a joke. I made something up about something. And he thought it was funny. And he's like, do you mind if I say that on stage? And I'm like, I'd love that. That'd be great. Yeah. And so the first time he used one of my jokes, it worked. And I felt like I had done it. And it was... I never felt that way before. So it it was a mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah. And I realized how amazing it felt to be able to write someone else's point of view sure instead of just my own point of view well yeah and especially one that you know you you it's so defined in the sense like you know gaff jim's point of view is pretty specific and he has a style so once you get the hang of that you know why not just you know fill his brain up Right. I mean, I'm not going to take credit for his like. No, jokes, no, I know that, but, but I'm just saying that that the delivery system is solid. Like it's it's like like there's moments where the reason why he's so popular is everybody thinks like Jim sometimes. Yeah, and you can kind of hear the next step in a lot of ways. Sure. Like especially me, I have like a PhD in Jim Gaffigan. I like yeah. know what he would say about <laughs> something. But when we we wound up writing a show together that was loosely based on our lives called The Jim Gaffigan Show. I'm sure you... The one with Adam Goldberg? Yes. And that was on... uh, TV Land. Yeah, TV Land for what, two, three seasons? It was for two seasons. We we started at CBS. Right. And then TV Land bought it. But by this time, though, like, so you guys get... Well, I think what's what's nice and what, what wasn't apparent Early on, I think, which was my point, yeah. was that you, you, you know, he's you both seem he seems to be very okay with giving you the credit you deserve after a certain point. After like there, a certain point, but you I mean, know, but there was a few years there where you were like this hidden weapon, or or and that's a diplomatic thing. But I mean, saying. I think that there's a lot of hidden weapons out there. I think there's a lot of. I mean, I know you're skeptical about that, but I think that a lot of wives and partners. No, of course. You know, are. Yeah, telling us to don't say that, say this. Yeah. That's not nice. (laughs) And it's like, it's kind of a very intimate relationship with, I mean, it's very hard to, you know, write comedy for someone with such a strong point of view in terms of, I mean, not coming up with it, but pitching it to them and making them open to it. And believe me, still, I'll say, I don't like that, or here's an idea, and he just completely ignores me. So there's still yeah, of there's course. still that yeah, but, but but like I mean, I've been in situations, I've been in a lot of relationships where I've either you know either I've I've really kept it to my my own shit, like you know you don't get involved in this, or I'll, I'll listen belligerently, you know, uh, to commentary about my act and integrate it. And then other relationships, I've been like, okay, that's a good idea, I'll try it. Okay, okay, you know, it's taken me a long time and several different women. So. <laughs> So, but I think I'm I'm leveling off a little bit. 
Well, I, I love to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. It was just the kind of year after year of working together. And it was about, yes, about loving each other very much, but also about trust. Because it was clear at a certain point that I wasn't trying to like step on him to get somewhere or he wasn't, you know, using me for something. After how many kids did well, that become look, clear? <laughs> I did not marry him until I knew that there was, you yeah. know, something really special there. Yeah. And I think that what really actually did it for us was the work ethic, because both of us are like crazy workers. And I think that alienates a lot of people out of relationships. And I think that both Jim and I are past relationships. People get intimidated and jealous of people who want to work so much. Yeah. And I think that- Do you think so? Oh, absolutely. Because the- You mean in a relationship? In a relationship. If you're like, I'm working or I'm going to- it's very separate and people feel alienated Uh and it's not intentional but it's like when you have kind of that drive to like produce things all the time and even though it wasn't exactly the same thing when we met we both had the same personality in that way like i would be working on some project like very intensely and he i mean before you know everything became digitized jim had like you know, just notebooks and day planners. And it was, it was like a madman. Yeah. You know, it was like, we both had this kind of like, almost like savant, you know, work style. Yeah. And although it was different, it was like, we related to each other on a level where we were like, okay, well, this is going to be part of our relationship working. Right. And then it just became working together. Yeah. Yes. And then we had five kids. Five. Yeah. It's like, how old is the oldest one? 15. That's insane. Yeah. So, but I mean, why why so many? I think I asked Jim that. It's not a religious thing. You just like them? I just kind of like them. <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those things where I got pregnant really a lot, you know? Clearly, like, but yeah. I, I mean, but you have choices. Yeah, but I mean, my choice was baby. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I chose baby. Right. And so... um you know, we just, and I I think that culturally, I came from nine, a family, nine, nine kids. Jim came from a family of six kids. So to us, five is kind of a small family. Yeah, or, or it's manageable anyway. It's manageable, yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's inc- I guess that's good. I think that we probably also tried to recreate the fun and chaos of our childhoods, too, yeah. in a way. And did you? Uh, oh, yeah. And then some. <laughs> yeah. Because so, we're in Manhattan. I know. It's a crazy place to raise kids. Not easy. No. Uh, I guess the only, the, the, I think the easiest thing must be that you don't have to drive 45 minutes you know, to get someplace. That's true. But when we were living in L.A., yeah. I have to say being uh, a parent of multiple children was easier because mm. I would just take the elevator. I was living in an apartment complex with a parking garage underneath. Yeah. And I would leave everything in the car. And for me, that was amazing because in New York, you just schlep everything. Oh, you got to have everything with you all the time. You can't leave anything anywhere. And so just like taking the kids in the elevator Uh, and just putting everyone in the car and just going to like Griffith Park and riding ponies. And it was so much easier than living in New York. Yeah. So living in L.A. So, you you know, all the kids are doing good. Everybody's doing good. Jim's okay. Um, Yeah, I think so. Uh I mean, Uh, he's busy. Yeah. He's he's touring and doing these press things all the time. So it's hard. He works really hard. I know. I know. Yeah. He I, talks about being lazy and whatever. That's his thing. But 
I think it. he wants to be lazy. Yeah. But he's not. I think maybe at another time. I, I don't think he was probably ever lazy. I think he's just always hard on himself. So, like, whatever he assumes lazy is probably isn't real. But I remember, I remember, like, maybe he was more in his head back in the day. But he was always pretty hard on himself, it seems. Oh, yeah. He's hard on himself. <laughs> Thank you. But, he, you know, I guess that <laughs> yeah. you know, worked for him. Sure. No, I, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Jim. So what year did you get married? 2003. So you were hanging out for a while. Yeah. And then Jim starts to get huge as a comic. Be- In 2006. Was it that long? Mm-hmm. Was that the- Because it went from, that was Hot Pockets. That was 2006. Well, we filmed uh, a King Baby. First theater, you know, yeah, big the first hour. Yeah. In 2005. Uh-huh. In, um, you know, late 2005. And then once that went- uh, out in was that HBO? It was Comedy Central. Comedy Central. And um, then he went to theaters. Yeah. So that was the year that it went from improvs right to theaters. Two thousand six. Two thousand and six. And that and the Hot Pockets bit was on King Baby. Yes, it was. And then it took him a decade to get that off his back. Oh yeah. <laughs> so still, and still, still the Hot Pocket guy. Still, yeah, can't get rid of it. It's a blessing <laughs> and a curse. Well, he's got other food items. Now there's a bacon chunk and there's, you know. Well, bacon chunk was in the next special. Uh-huh. Like, as a matter of fact, the last, <laughs> like, three specials have had, like, no food in it. But he's still the food guy, you know. Oh, did, did, but is that a conscious decision you two make? Uh, I, I think that it's one that he made. <laughs> that he was like, because it was like, how many more, the food comics here Yeah. did he need? Yeah. Well, yeah. He, he could have kept going with it. <laughs> So, okay, so you get married, you start having children, he's getting big as a comic. So the second show, the one that ended up on TV, TV Land, Land. That was later, yeah. That was like in 2013. And you've you've helped Jim write and create all I've his specials. Produced, I've uh, Since King Baby, I started producing all the specials. Through your company, through, through Jim. Through my mutual company with right, Jim. Right, with Jim, right. Yeah, and directing and- well, right. what, is, what does that entail, the production, when, when you produce it? Like, so that means, like, if... Uh, okay, so you act as the production entity. You get the money from whoever the network is or whoever. You don't self-produce, or do you? That Well, yeah, that's correct. Will, you work with a production yeah. company. And, like, let's say someone, like, you know, let's just say Netflix yeah. buys the special. Sure. And then you get the money, and, yeah, or, right. or you... Put up the money, and then you get the money. You right. know, and so you get the uh, production company. You design it. Yeah. You decide what you know uh, outfit, what opening, sure. What, and then you decide what material stays and goes. And it was pretty much from soup to nuts. Like I'm in the edit. Yeah. I choosing. Which shots. one did you direct? Um, I've directed the last three of them. The last three specials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On Netflix. Um, the last one was on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. The one before that was a um, comedy dynamics, did like a multi-platform right, release. Right. Then the one before that, Cinco, was on Netflix. Why would you change from Netflix? Well, okay, that <laughs> well, this is really Jim's wheelhouse, but okay. I will tell you my perspective on Netflix. If Jim has five specials on Netflix, yeah, why would a new special on Netflix be special? Right. right? Because then you search Jim Gaffigan and you've got all these choices. So there, we have so many specials right now that I have to consciously make sure that the backgrounds look vastly different. Yeah. Because or else someone will look at it and be like, oh, I saw that one. Right. Oh, right. And yeah. it might be a new hour. Right. 
So um, the comedy dynamics thing was just a way to like get it everywhere. Right. So we had five on Netflix. So the sixth one was Comedy Dynamics. Right, so it's on iTunes, so wherever, you know, yeah, streaming. Yeah, so wherever. Yeah, yeah, right. And then this last one, Noble Ape, was the first uh, ever comedy special that Amazon produced. Yeah. So rather than just making it somewhere else and putting it on Amazon, like Amazon as a company was like, we want to produce this special. So, okay, and then you're doing the TV show with Adam Goldberg and some other people based on your life in New York. Yes, Michael Ian Black. And this was when you're doing everything. You're you're writing it with him, you're producing it. Executive you're, producer. You're directing some. Or... And, and directing. And got in the DGA. Yeah. You, you got in the DGA, B- yeah. yeah. Big, it, was, it, it was the most balanced form of collaboration because when I'm doing production for yeah. Jim, it's him. Right. And I'm... In the background, right. In, I of course I was still in the background, but it was like, I wrote a character called Jeannie Gaffigan. So from this my is your, perspective. this is your life. Like you guys are co-writing something based. You're a, yeah. You're the second. You're the second lead in this. I'm the your second character. lead in this. My character. Yeah. And I'm also, you know, story editor. It was a very very intense show because every it was all shot in New York, which is much harder. Yeah. And um, locations very difficult. Yeah. Design. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a. It was a very challenging show. And we we chose to do everything like a movie. So it's, let's say we we wanted to shoot a scene at Katz's yeah. Deli, we wouldn't like go to a studio and pretend it was Katz's Deli. It's yeah. like We had to go to Katz's Deli at four in the morning. Yeah. Light it like it was day. Well, they're only op- they're only closed for like two hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we'd have to buy out breakfast. It was yeah. very grueling schedule. Now, what happened in that show? Well, at the renewal, yeah. where season three was, we were waiting to renew it. Yeah. Um, Jim and I were both. Jim was resistant to having somebody kind of take over the writing, and I was like, I can't maintain the five kids. My kids are getting older. I'm working eighty hours a week on this show. I can't keep up the schedule. So I need to kind of get someone else to do yeah. the writing and right. just be one of those executive producers that comes in and opens the door and it's like, everything good, see you later. Right. Take and, a look at the scripts maybe. Yeah. But don't. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously it's yeah. my name's on it and everything. Yeah. But I think that Jim was just really resistant to opening up our life. It was a very personal show. Yeah. And I think that as many talented people as we know, yeah. to write my voice, to write his voice, it was very, it was a really hard decision. But ultimately, you know, we had to call the network and say, "Listen, um, we want to end the show now." Wow! And it was—it's kind of strange to hear myself say that because it was like one of the most creatively fulfilling yeah. things I've ever done. Yeah. But there became kind of a choice: like, do I want? to do 10 seasons of an amazing show and not know my kids at all? Yeah. Or do I want to ha- do two really great seasons and have yeah. fantastic kids Yeah, that and, I know? And you had a good working relationship with everybody? On the show? Yeah, in general. I, as and far as the, I know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what was said behind closed <laughs> doors, but I mean, to me, it was like a family, another uh-huh. family. Yeah. So I, I adored everyone on that show. 
Well, that's good. It's good to feel that way about people you work with, right? Yeah, it's great. I do. I do want to say though that I was so busy on that show that I never went to the doctor. I, the last episode was like on location. I was directing. It was in uh, Long Island. Yeah. There was like fifty-two scenes in it. I sprained my foot. I didn't go to the doctor. I got um, some crutches out of the props department yeah. and just hobbled around. So when right after that, I was discovered to have this brain tumor, I realized that had I done season three, I would have like, dropped dead on the set. That's terrible. I'm glad you didn't. So Thank you. How do you start to know that there's something wrong? Well, um, I lost a hearing in one of my ears. Just out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Oh my and I was God. on a plane from uh, London. Jim was doing a, a tour, and we took the kids. Mm. And I put my headphones on on the plane, and I thought one of them was dead. Like it was just no sound. Like when you that like noise canceling headphones, you can tell yeah, when yeah, one doesn't sure, work. Sure. So I switched the headphones around, and I realized it wasn't the headphones; it was my ear. Uh, and I was kind of like, well, I guess I can't hear under that ear. I'm getting old. You know, I just dismissed come it. On. Yeah, I just dismissed it. So literally two months later, I was at- uh, You didn't go to the doctor. No, didn't go to the doctor. I thought about it, but then got busy. Didn't did go. The, did the hearing come back? No. That's insane. No, I know. It was like, yeah, right. uh, Mark, I'm embarrassed now okay. to talk about it, but this is what the book is about. Yeah. Just completely being so overwhelmed with taking care of other people. Mm. That you neglect yourself. Mm. You know how they say, put the oxygen sure, mask on sure, first? Sure, yeah. I mean, I wasn't putting the oxygen mask on. So I was at a visit with my kids at the at the pediatrician. And the doctor was speaking to me. And I turned my head and she goes, what's wrong with your ear? And I'm like, oh, I can't hear out of it anymore. She's like, yeah, that's not good. Why Why wouldn't you come to the doctor? And I was like, I, I was going to. She wrote me a you know, referral, went to an ENT. He couldn't see anything wrong. Got an MRI, came out, found out I had, you know, three days to live or something. They saw this huge brain tumor blocking uh, on my brain stem. Were you by yourself when you went for the MRI? Yes. yes. I was just another thing on my to-do list. You right, know, yeah. Drop off kids, go to MRI, what get happens milk. that day you went to ha- when you get the results? I mean- Well, I just knew something was wrong, yeah. but they didn't tell me what it was. Yeah. So then I went through a, a kind of a, a mystery thriller- section of the book where I'm like, what is going on? And all the things I had to do to find out in like a two-day period. Oh, I'd be right, because the technician can't they tell can't you. They can't tell you. And uh, my yeah. doctor wasn't there. It was like some random, uh, you know, he prescribed me go to a radiology center. So you're center. freaking out and you, and you like for two days before you can see your doctor? Well, at the, the same day, because I could tell when the radiologist, I mean, I was one look on his face when I went in the tube. And another look on the face when I went out of the tube. And they can't say anything. But I knew. I knew something was really wrong. Yeah. But for what I knew, they were checking my ear. So I thought maybe I have like a, you know, audio neuroma or something yeah. in there. Never did I imagine. So then there was a lot of phone calls. Jim got involved. Where we were calling the doctor. being Just like, so you can get the results. And then um, I eventually uh, called my friend who lives in Milwaukee, who's a neurologist who I grew up with. And I'm yeah. like, look, man, I can't get the, anyone on the phone. I, the, I, the, my ENT said there's a mass in my brain 
and he has to refer me to another doctor to like, but I didn't see the scan. I don't know what. So he was like, get the scan, FedEx it to me at my hospital because you can't read these things on your computer. Sure. Then Jim and I just like carried on business as usual that night. So you sent it to your friend. I sent it to the friend. In the morning, he texted me. He said, you need to get to the OR. He's like, I don't, I'm like, I don't have a neurosurgeon. He's like, go to the emergency room at the best neurosurgery hospital in New York today. And he texted me a picture of my skull with what appeared to be a pear lodged I in my- That picture's in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my so, God. So that day, he's like- is the, it picking- the next day after the MRI. And did you? Oh yeah, I got in a cab with Jim. And I went to Mount Sinai Hospital. Yeah. A physician's assistant from the neurosurgery at Mount Sinai called me and said, where do you live? And I said, I'm a block away from the ER at Mount Sinai. And she said, come upstairs to 8 West. I have a neurosurgeon here who's delayed in surgery that can look at your scan. Because I was in a panic. Yeah. But you, this doesn't happen. You don't just walk into a t- top you know, chief of neurosurgery office. And it wasn't like I was like, oh, I got a comedian husband. They didn't know my name, nothing. Yeah, right. It was a... Um, it was just like this series of miracles. Yeah. In the book, I call it like when Moses parted the Red Sea. Right. I just walked right in. It was a. It was just a series of coincidences that, to me, are a miracle. Yeah. Walk into the chief neurosurgery office. He puts in my scan. He's like, "Yep, you got a problem here." He's like, "I would recommend that you get scanned tomorrow." It was Good Friday. I remember that because I'm Catholic. And it was that's a big day, so he's like, "You get scanned all day. We're gonna take lots of pictures of your brain, head, neck, MRIs, CT scans, all this stuff, and we're gonna put together a virtual reality of your brain. And then I want you in the hospital on Monday, so you have the weekend off to spend with your family. I mean, it was like emergency Wait, brain surgery. Yeah, right. So was it was it like you know you have the weekend off to spend with your family, and this might be it." Did you, did you have that he feeling? Told, I did. You did. He told me, you're not going to die, but it's like, this is right. Your facial nerve is in that. You're, he was showing me on the screen. He's like, this is breathing, swallowing, uh, movement. Oh, God. They, they, I mean, I had to sign a lot of like, in case of this, in case of that, in case of that. Yeah. Without thinking about it, and and is Jim freaking out or was he? Uh, yeah, uh, he was freaking out. He has friends that have like lost people, like yeah. wives. Yeah, and he was calling those people before he lost me. You know, so I was like, <laughs> he's preemptively, he's getting prepared for the emotional. I mean, he was like, I'm. He he did not. You know, he was. He he knew it was big. Yeah, and but then we had this very normal weekend. And I with the kids with the kids, and yeah. I told very little people because very few I people about the thing. I didn't. Yeah. I told my mom, mom, dad. Yeah. Very close friends. Um, I, the schools. I you know I wasn't going to be able to be go, coming into the schools. Yeah. And um, God, you know, told him. Yeah. And then um, how did he respond? Um, pretty well. Good. He took it pretty well. <laughs> Um, so Monday I went to the hospital. Yeah. They tried to do a procedure, um, to embolize the tumor, which is sealing the blood vessels so it doesn't, so I don't bleed. Yeah. Well, bleed too during 
Oh, during surgery. Like, yeah, it's not going to grow because they're going to take it out. So they just want it not to be to bleed because there's, right. I mean, it's, vein, it's, it's venous. It's like there's blood it's feeding. It's its own body. Yeah. 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 So, um, it's a monster. It's a monster. It was like a th- it was like speaking to me, being like, hey, 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 I'm going to kill you. And yeah. I'd be like, shut up. Yeah. Like I started to feel it you did. after I saw it. Yeah. I'm sure it was psychological, but I could feel it back there. Like yeah. just this menacing. Ugh. And so, but it was deep. So I couldn't really feel it. Yeah. Like all of a sudden I went from not feeling anything to feeling a lot and connecting. You know, I have one of those moments like in the usual suspects at the end where all the pictures like get oh, connected. Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. So I'm like hearing loss, headaches, dizziness, things I had compartmentalized and brushed off as For years. I'm busy. I've had too many babies. I'm getting old. For know, years, probably. Probably years. 10. Wow. But I mean, slowly, insidious. Were they able to say that though? Can they t- could they tell you how long it had been there when the it when could it was have, born? They told me it could have been there for 10 years because of how high functioning I was. Yeah. And the slower growing a tumor, the more your brain finds ways- To build around to it. To build around mm. it. So the So like, for instance, that's why they were like, we don't think you have brain cancer because you might have brain cancer, but it's not like this tumor isn't from brain cancer. There might be cancerous elements to the tumor, but cancer grows really rapidly. Right. That's why people like find out they have cancer and then they This was just a specific thing. It was benign. But I didn't know that until like three weeks after the surgery. But this is why he said, because of course, the first thing I said was, "Is is it cancer? I mean, I I never heard brain tumor without cancer. Yeah. Now I do. Now I know. Now I'm like a medical student. Yeah. But the reason why it was so, um, I was so high functioning would lend the doctor to believe that it was insidiously growing for a very long time. Right. And cancer would not grow that way. Cancer would blow up and, and take I would over be, your body. Yeah. I would drop, you know, I the, all the things that it was touching would have been, you know, they describe it like an elephant on a clothesline. Yeah. If you put an elephant on a clothesline, it's going to break. Yeah. But if you slowly keep building all these little things on the clothesline until it gets so heavy, eventually you can put an elephant on it and it's not going to mm. break. Mm-hmm. So uh, they re- removed it in like a 10-hour surgery. Oh, man. And um, very successful surgery where I woke up and I realized that I had had brain surgery and that I was cognizant I couldn't move, but I was, I had my brain. Really? So you're paralyzed? I, I don't know. I, I think it was the drugs, uh-huh. but I, I couldn't move. Right. But I wasn't, all I remember is that when I woke up from the surgery and yeah. looked around and I had thoughts and I knew that I was not brain damaged. Right, right. You know, and yeah. like that was one of the things you had that- consciousness. Consciousness. I, yeah. I think therefore I am. Right. And I had this big moment. Where yeah. I was like, "Oh my God, I'm me." Yeah, because going in, you're like, "I'm, I <laughs> yeah. might never have a memory again." Oh my God! So it was amazing, and everyone was happy. Yeah. Every I could tell everyone was like, "It was," you know, the doctor was happy. Everyone was happy, and then and the whole I, family was there. No, no kids. Oh. It, it was it was in the ICU. So I was, it was in you the and ICU. Jim? So Jim was there. Yeah. Jim was there with my doctors, happy. Then I became unconscious again. I mean, I was kind of like waking up. And then when I woke up again, I had tubes on my throat. I was on, you know, I was intubated. Something had gone very wrong. Really? 
So what I found out was because of my compromised swallowing, when they took the breathing tube out. From the brain, from the damage from the tumor. Yes, the, the, the compromised nerves. Yeah. My speech and swallow uh, devices were all intertwined and mixed up because I, I had this like huge thing that was gone. Oh, yeah. So it, it all of a sudden was had nerves that weren't they didn't in know place. what to do, right. And so I apparently aspirated Ugh. during the night and got a double lung strep pneumonia Ugh. and got very close to death from that. But all I knew was that everything was great. And then all of a sudden, like, I couldn't, you know, I didn't really understand what was going on because I couldn't, no one told me. Jim claims that everyone's like, yeah, you have double lung strep pneumonia, by the way. That's why you're. But I was like, what is happening? Like, yeah. why am I on all these tubes and yeah. everyone's running around and yeah. worried and scared? And hmm. it was very chaotic. Yeah. And so that, that a, a two week period followed that, you know, with, you know, no, no eating, very little breathing on my own, you know. And you, was, were a, you were conscious? Oh, yeah. Wide awake. Ugh. Wide awake. And I just got furious I, I was furious i was like what is happening why yeah. can't i leave Ugh. and that's when i really discovered that the the power of meditative prayer because i was in such a state because i was mentally a hundred percent with it yeah but physically i couldn't like i had you know i was so thirsty i was so hungry i couldn't talk Ugh. Um, yeah. I, uh, I saw a lot of my family was there. Yeah. And I just wanted to leave and see my kids. I couldn't see my kids. Yeah. It was that period. I mean, the brain surgery wasn't even like the big deal. It was that recovery. Oh, yeah. Almost dying from the pneumonia and, the, and you're, yeah. you're not being able to swallow. And the talk. food tube. It was a lot. So what, what about meditative prayer? Well, it took me out of my body. Now, were you a prayer before? Uh, not like this, but I mean, I always believed in God. Like, I'm, uh, I, Jim describes me as a Shiite Catholic. Yeah. Like, I'm always like, hey, God, what should I do about this situation? Or thank God for this, whatever. So you guys are pretty space. dug into your faith, the, the two of you. So you I mean, the... Jim kind of, I mean, you'd have to talk to him about that, but like, he goes along with it. Uh. He's just not as... Effervescent but you do the it. church thing too. We do the church thing for yeah. sure. We do the church thing, and we're very, um, you know, about like social justice, and our kids are, you know, love thy neighbor, and there's Heaven no and weirdness. There's no weird like exclusiveness about us. Is there hell? Uh yes, absolutely. Okay. I saw it. I I didn't go in it, <laughs> but said... I got really close to it. Yeah. Yeah, I was like in a boat. In my vision, this in my when you were sick? oh yeah when I was in the in the ICU yeah. when I was all messed up on yeah. and I actually don't talk about this in the book at all because you know obviously I want people to buy it so I'm gonna say it on your podcast good I had this vision that I was in a boat it's probably you know based on like literature and you know Dante and all this sure. stuff but it was really real. You know, all I could see was darkness and this like rocky cliff. And I was ever, as I got closer and closer, I started to feel terrified. And all over the cliff were like thorns and bramble uh -huh. and like uh, 
you know, like scratches, yeah. scratches. And I remember thinking, oh, that's hell. And huh. I wonder if I'm headed right for it. Yeah. But it was terrifying. I was like, this is like death. This yeah. is like, I felt like I was getting close to death. And it was terrifying. That seems more more likely because why would you assume you would go to hell? I didn't assume I was going to hell, but I think that it was part of the journey. Oh, right. Because what I chose to do at that point mm. was like look to the light, right? You I was like, I'm looking the, you, to the light right. and I'm going to um, talk to God and I'm going to say, look, if this is it for me, I want to be with you. Mm. I don't want to be at this other place. And as I did that, I started to come out of it and I started to be really hopeful mm. and joyful about what I could do in this life. And I started kind of bargaining with God and I was like, look, I really feel like there's more for me to do here. Yeah. And I really felt like God spoke to me and said, yeah, you're, you're going to live, but you got to get your shit together because your priorities are messed up. Really? And you, you're doing all these things to be a good mother, quit yeah. your, your show and all this stuff, but how, what you, you giving them more quantity and you're giving your husband more quantity. But your quality time, it's not there. You're huh. you're doing things to be a good wife, to be a good mother for other people. And yeah, right, where's it coming from? And where's it coming from? Mm. What what is it? My ego. Mm. I mean, it was kind of heavy, mm -hmm. and it was like, what about the moments? Mm -hmm. Like, what what moments are you having with people? Where's mm. the connection? Like, are you going, look, to be a good like mother, I have to make sure my kid practices their piano and does their homework and that I balance my life and all this stuff. But conceptually, it was working. But spiritually, there was like, I wasn't taking the time to just stop and go, you know, just tell me about your day. Forget about all this stuff. So let me just let the so, dishes pile up. Right. So God said you were being, uh, you were missing life and you were being... Uh, trying too hard or being selfish in some way. Yeah. Trying too hard to win. Yeah. At all those things. Yes. And so what does meditative prayer look like? Okay, so meditative prayer, when I was in, I I chose to do it in the form of the Catholic Rosary because that's how what I know. So someone instructed you on this? Or you read I it? just know it because I grew up Catholic. Well, I know the rosary, but meditative prayer is a Catholic thing. No, it's a it's a everything thing. Okay, okay. But the 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 tool I used right. for meditative prayer was, was the, the Catholic sure. rosary, right? Because that's my yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say that it's for everyone, but it worked for me. What moving the beads? It was. It's a series of prayers oh, yeah. on the beads. Yeah. I obviously couldn't have any beads in the MRI, but I could picture them. And what it did was it just, it's like a mantra. It's like a letting go and a repetitive uh, uh, prayer yeah. or chant sure. that you. takes you out of your pain and your suffering and puts you into a higher, more mystical level. Mm -hmm. And so, um, look, I mean, I didn't get it either before I went through this. But when I would be in that tube, it's very claustrophobic. Yeah. And it bangs. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Gang, 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 yeah. For like three hours. Yeah. And when I had the intubation, 
it breathes the, the for tube? you. The breathing tube? The breathing yeah. tube. So you don't feel like you get any air because if you feel, you know how when you're in a small space, you, mm. you yeah, gasp. Yeah, you're already you, panicky. You can't breathe against that thing. Yeah. So it's really horrible. So when I was in that tube, I needed to go out of that tube yeah. because I felt like I was going to lose Mentally. my mind. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then- Oh, that's uh, where you learned it. What I knew yeah. was the rosary. Right. And I just started saying the rosary and I went somewhere else. I do that with the serenity prayer if I can't sleep. And, or, the yeah. serenity prayer is a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not even a believer, but I do the repetitions. But if you do the serenity prayer, yeah. then you're acknowledging that there's a higher power, whether it's universal power sure. of love. Yeah, yeah. Because you can't do it all yourself. Right. No, that's right. That, I mean, yeah, you're acknowledging that you can't do it all yourself yeah. and that you shouldn't think that you can. And it, maybe your higher power is that all the other people in the program or whatever. Or just like, or just sort of like that, it just lets you off the hook with a certain amount of faith. I don't even know if I have to define the higher power, but it does let yeah. you off the hook. People get skipped out about that. I mean, you know what? My friend, John, who yeah. saved my life. The neurologist? The neurologist. Uh, close childhood friend. Total atheist. Yeah. He helped me with my faith, ironically. Yeah. More than, I mean, I'm very happy for all the priests, nuns, rabbis, yeah. everyone who came to my side. But here's one of my friends who's a complete atheist. You had a rabbi in, at your side? I had, I had, listen, we have a very diverse set of friends. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, I had my babies at home. Okay. I'm a home birth person. Yeah. And, my so I had my boys at home, and my boys, you know, needed to be circumcised. Yeah. And usually, when you have a baby in the hospital, they circumcise the baby in the hospital. So I called my pediatrician, and I'm like, "Look, I'm having a boy," and uh, he had a, he's a home birth guy too. Yeah. This my pediatrician, and I was like, "What do I do?" And he's like, "Well, you you get a moil." Yeah. And I was like, "Do you know any moils?" He's like, "I absolutely do." You know, he's Jewish, right? <laughs> so I interviewed this moil who is a female. A pediatrician, Moyle, rabbi, so you had, lesbian. Your kid had a bris. So and she said, I'm only going to do a bris. Yeah. So we have to do a naming ceremony. She goes, I know you're not Jewish, but she's like, <laughs> you know, invite your priest, yeah. whatever. So Jim and I had three brises at our home. Very traditional <laughs> the, the, Jewish brises three Catholic with Jewish a Catholic brises. priest and <laughs> yeah. a rabbi. Oh, yeah. So I mean, so you have these relationships. We with have these, these relationships. Spiritual my, advisors. you know, grandmother on my father's side is Jewish. Yeah, I'm from a mixed background. I'm I am very open to multi interfaith, you know, dialogue. Yeah. I have friends who are from atheist to, you know, yeah, devout, sure. you know, yeah, Catholics. So so how did the neurologist say you know, help your faith? He basically, I I called him because we. You know, so-called people of faith yeah. have very little faith when it comes to the. Uh, and I'm speaking for myself um, and everyone else, but um, when it comes to like the actual moment of uh, life and death, mm. so we we can all be like, oh, heaven, hell, you want to get into heaven, but then when you're like actually like on the verge of death, you're on like, but I don't want to go to heaven. Yeah. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to die because I really you don't, don't believe. Die. Right. Oh, really? No, I mean, I'm, I, I'm just saying, like, why, <clears throat> if you believe that heaven is this, you know, nirvana that you're working your life to Right, achieve, why would you be afraid to die at right? all? Right. 
So it's like it's the challenge to sit at well, the, the end. transition's a little, you know, it's heavy. Well, the transition's heavy, but like, let's be honest, yeah. like we're all like, <clears throat> yay heaven, unless we're gonna die. Then right. we're like, well, maybe not now. Yeah, I don't want. I'm not ready. Yeah. So, um, I, the night before my surgery, I called him and I said, I think I'm having a stroke. Like I'm just like my whole body's tingling. I'm like I know I'm gonna drop dead right before the surgery. So after I got all these blessings and faith things and whatever, I turned to my scientist friend and I was like, "Why did I call him?" And he was, and he told me, "Jeannie, you have faith. You have your family. You're not going to have a stroke. You got this far." And he gave me this pep talk, and it was so generous of him. Because I here's this kid, I mean, not adult now, but we grew right. up together, that would mock every step of the way. The, you know, the God thing, yeah, the, yeah. the angels. Sure. He, he's funny, you know? So he'd be like, right, so an angel came in and, right. right. Yeah. But if even if I said, I changed my mind, he'd be like, there is no mind. The mind is not a real thing. Like, he's that kind of yeah, heavy dude. Right. John Broderick, love him to death. He gave me the most... He strengthened my faith because he was like, don't forget what you believe. Right. You're forgetting what you believe. And he gave me this very scientific analysis of me having a crisis of faith, and he's the atheist. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting, an interesting type of empathy. Yeah. And so you survived, and you're doing well. Yes. And the thing with your throat now, is that what's happening with that? So- Basically, as um, you probably know, I was I had a tracheostomy and I had a feeding tube for a while. Yeah. So when the tracheostomy came out, my uh, vocal cord, yeah. my left one was still paralyzed. Mm. So I started to get a series of treatments like um, steroid, steroid injections yeah. mm. and things to make it kind of come back. So at my two-year anniversary, which was like in May, um, they looked at my brain and they said, look, you are pretty much recovered. So you still are going to have a paralyzed vocal cord. It's not going to come back. But there's a surgery that you could do called a palatal or a type one thyroplasty uh-huh. and a palatal adhesion. I've gotten I've gotten a few surgeries where they take the good vocal cord and put an implant in it and stick it to the bad vocal cord so they move together. Oh. So that was the most recent surgery I had. Yeah. So what you hear now is um, temporary, but um you'll see it's i'll see uh-huh. and i might have to have another surgery i might but this is like i can't complain mark no i mean look at me i could have been i mean they were almost uh 100 sure that i my facial nerve was gone yeah you know how when people have a stroke yeah. and they and i was like fine yeah i already have a husband yeah. <laughs> too bad for him <laughs> yeah and you know yeah it's amazing it's a it's definitely a lot to be grateful for and you're on a boat you saw the gate of hell you made some choices. You almost died. I'm not saying I was headed to hell, but no, I, I felt know. I like get it, it was... I get it. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I don't think you were. But but uh, and also like in I can't like I can't imagine you know the sort of because I don't have a family like that. But but just to be surrounded by people with that much love and that much concern and that much support, it, you must have really seen a lot of 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 who those people were in a way you probably didn't anticipate or necessarily want to. Absolutely. I saw a side of people 
I especially when I'm not like talking and doing everything. Yeah. It was like a forced retreat from like myself. And you're completely vulnerable and 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 fragile. Like totally opposite of how you w- exist in the world. Yeah. And yet people showed up for you. It, you know, it must have been, they, they probably must have been a, a learning curve on that. It was amazing because <laughs> I also had this whole um, secret-ism, which was momism. So I had this kind of like, and I didn't know I had it. Mm. It's where I kind of was like, well, if you're not a mom, you're not going to get it. Yeah. Right? Right. And honestly, I was faced with my momism in the hospital because the people, the single people, actually could show up more. Yeah. Because they didn't have a kid at home. Right? Uh huh. And I saw, because I have a lot of siblings. Yeah. And I saw the siblings that I had thought, oh, they don't get it. Like yeah. we, we, with my, my kid having siblings, we'd always like, oh, they do not get it. Yeah. They don't get how easy their life is. There was a lot of that kind of stuff yeah. going on. But when I saw my non-kid having siblings, the level of care that they were able to give me, it completely uh, said, listen, I'm, I have a wrong idea here. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the uh, amount of caregiving you have. And I feel bad that in the past I, and they're like, well, I didn't know you felt that way. And I was like, well, I did. <laughs> And, yeah, and then so, and then Jim, um, although Jim is, look, when I started dating Jim in 2000, he was already 30. He was already in his 30s, maybe 33, I don't remember. But he was a bachelor. He had everything. He didn't need anyone to take care of him. But over the past, like, you know, almost 20 years, uh-huh. he's become very accustomed to having someone take care of everything. He goes and does his thing, but I, I mean, know the teacher's names, right? right? I know where everyone goes. I have the schedule done. I know who's on the board of the building Mm co-op. I know, you know, he doesn't know any of that stuff. right? And so when I was um, taken out, I mean, I was like being wheeled into the OR being like, oh, my computer password is, you know, uh, the fresh direct password. The, I was like, there's just too much to like impart. Right. And as I was recovering, I realized that doing everything for people completely t- robs them of their ability to function. It immobilizes them. <laughs> and so there were two things there. It but that's a control me, thing. I was over-controlling mm. my, my life and yeah. my people and my kids. And secondly, it showed me that they're just fine on their own. Sure. They don't need... That's the biggest, the, you know. That, that's the biggest fear, I think. The, you know, for, the right. Nazi boot camp that I was running. Right. Well, I think that's part of the, the, the maybe the existential thing you went through with your conversation with God. You know, is that your biggest fear is that you would be useless? Yeah. If you didn't try to control everything. Yeah. <laughs> and there I was useless, and I was like, and everybody was okay. Everyone was fine. They were better. <laughs> And Jim, stuff came out of him that he never had before. Oh, yeah? And things blossomed in my kids. And I watched it from and, afar. Yeah. They didn't need me, but they kind of did. Well, of course they did, yeah. but, you know, they, you know, they, you know, like what, though? Like, what did you notice? Well, like, I noticed that, like, Jim started learning all about the day-to-day stuff. Sure. And I out feel- Out of necessity. Out of necessity, but I feel like- 
in my recovery, he has a whole different level of appreciation for me. Right. And he probably enjoyed doing some of this stuff. Yeah. And also he did, uh, he'd do things like when I, I couldn't do anything. Like my, my son, uh, Jack, uh, was going to like all these bar mitzvahs every weekend because yeah. everyone was turning 13. And my husband, I, I'm bad at tying ties, yeah. but I would do it because he wasn't home, right? Yeah. And then he would be like, when he does something better than me, he like brags about it. He's like, who ties a better tie? Yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of like this kind of like fun competition of yeah. who made eggs better. Uh-huh, uh-huh, oh good. And it was a different level of our relationship uh-huh. because before he was not doing that stuff. Wow, wow. So it reconnect, it connected him as a father. And yeah. Some, yeah. And when for you, like I know that I, I didn't, there's in the book, I mean, how how is outside of surviving, you know, what are the, the sort of takeaways, you know, from, you know, how are you, how are you living your life differently now? I'm just not um, caring so much about the little things. Mm. I think that I am a person who naturally sweats small stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't change my entire personality. I still sweat small stuff. I still get irritated by this and that. Yeah. But I have a different level of awareness that it's small stuff. And oh, right, right, right. Like you can, like if you're immersed in it, you can be like, this isn't that important. I know I'm who I am, but I don't need to, this doesn't have to ruin my day. And I see the big picture. Right, right. So um, there's a couple of things. There's a, a, a story that kind of illustrates this. At one point, someone left the window open in our apartment, and a dirty squirrel got into my apartment and just started running amok. Yeah. And I went crazy. This is pre-brain tumor. And I was like, oh, my God, I had all this stuff to do, and there's a squirrel, and it's a crisis, and I was calling all these exterminators. Rabies and who knows what. Right, running around, like, you know, using the toilet all over my house. I was imagining it would disappear. Where was it? Yeah. And it was like this awful thing. And I had to cancel appointments. And I was like, I can't leave. Then no exterminator would come over. Nobody cared. I was so, I was so you know, it was just this awful thing. Where I was like, where's the squirrel? Who's going to kill the squirrel? Yeah. And I was like, and then the kids were like, don't kill the squirrel. And yeah. I'm like, where's the squirrel? So anyway, eventually the squirrel shows its head. Every, all the kids are like, the squirrel. Jim gets like an empty like Amazon box. That's, everyone always has an empty Amazon box in their house. And we all chase the squirrel into a bathroom. And we corner the squirrel. And Jim boxes the squirrel, captures the squirrel, holds it up. We all run out in front of the building, go down the elevator. Oh, no, we went down the stairs. Yeah. And we open the box and set the squirrel or chipmunk or whatever it was yeah. out into the streets of New York City, into yeah. the wild, right. where it was probably run over by a truck like two seconds later. Right. And every, all the kids are like, yay! And we're like, the squirrel. So now I look at these irritating moments yeah. as like the squirrel story. Yeah. Like at the time I was sweating the disgusting squirrel in the house. But now it's this fantastic story. That's like part of this bigger picture that bonded us as a family and it was so fun and we all laugh about it. And so in the moment when I'm like, you know, 
the the teacher says that you know there's a lice scare in the classroom or something yeah. and i'm like everyone bend down the hatches we're gonna ruin our life now for now i'm kind of like you know what this is gonna be a funny story right. someday sure so that's my main so like yeah you're not freaking out over it yeah and then there's gratitude like yeah. i'm like so grateful at little moments yeah but i swallow water I'm like, oh my God, that feels so good. I still am connected to that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I don't want to forget it, but right, right now it's kind of hard because it's still kind of hard for me to swallow. Yeah. But like, even when I like, I saw you walk out today and I, because I was like calling Rob and I was like, am I in the right place? And I'm like, I see a hedge and I don't know. And then I saw you and I was like, I just felt all this gratitude. And I was like, it wasn't just gratitude for seeing you. I was like, wow, I got on a plane, did crash, yeah. got here. Beautiful day. Yeah. There's Mark. Yeah. I was in New York this morning. It's wild, right? Yeah. And I was just like so happy and grateful. Oh, good. And I, I don't know. I think I was just kind of before like, okay, to do list. No, to I do, do list. like, yeah. I mean, I get that. Yeah. I mean, I understand that. That, you know, to take that pause and really realize, you, you know, hopefully you don't have to almost die to do that. But, yeah. But, but there's times where like, and, and the weird thing is, is if you have that personality, you know you're going to do it. Yeah. Right. You're gonna freak out. Yeah. And and it's really you know trying to 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 nip it in the bud a little bit. Yeah. Like in the middle, or yeah, you know, it seems hard to do it before. Yeah. Because so, you're automatically gonna go. Yeah. There. And it sometimes may, maybe it's necessary. Maybe that's how you t- do it. Yeah. It's just me. Right. You know. And then, but there's a point where you're like, well, I don't need this to be, you know, toxic. You know, I don't need to ruin everyone's day. You know, I don't need to, you know, make everybody crazy. You know, I mean, I feel that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And then, so, I mean, the 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 gratitude uh, portion yeah. is just something that I write in the book. Like, I don't want, this is what I can say to you. you don't have to get a brain tumor to realize this. Yeah. So I think that. I was lucky to have the brain tumor because I don't know if I would have realized it. Mm. So that's why I put that in the book because I want people not to have a brain tumor. Just every once in a while, even if you have to write yourself a little meaningful to-do list on sure. the side. Right. Like just do a random act of kindness to someone today. Yeah. When you swallow your coffee, be like, wow, some people can't swallow coffee. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for this coffee. You know, these little tiny mm. moments... We don't have to do these grand changing the world gestures because all these little things will add up to changing the world. You hope, yeah. And uh, well, how how's the control freak stuff? Oh, it's it's me. But I <laughs> look, I, I it's just it's the same thing. It's like it's checking myself. Yeah. Like how important is this? Right. How important is this? Because you know you have you can't. It's not a uh, uh, you don't want anarchy. Yeah, no, I mean, some right. people do, but yeah. I don't want anarchy. Like, but yeah, you know, my uh, nine-year-old just turned ten. She is into making slime. You know, this is a big thing, right? You make different kinds of slime with borax and glue, and it's uh-huh. uh, you could, it's you know, slime. Yeah, it's I, know, like, I remember. Yeah, it used so to now come it's in like a designer. Uh, it's all these beautiful colors. You put marbles in it. It's like this whole little science thing. So my daughter is really into the slime thing. And so I had a list of rules and regulations for slime in the house. Yeah. Because they make it if you if you put shaving cream in it, it 
uh, shaving cream makes it like this big fluffy slime. Wow. And I they love know. it. But it would I like, didn't know like, there's a whole slime subculture. Oh, it's it's huge. Okay. YouTube it. It's, okay. it's huge. Okay. With like tweens yeah. and younger. And I was a little bit like glue in, a, in my house. Yeah. And so I made a list of rules and regulations. Slime. For about slime. slime yeah. How to deal with it. Because I was finding it in places that I'm like, uh-uh. Yeah. So, but after the surgery, I realized that I never was like, can you teach me how to make the slime? <laughs> I never engaged with the slime. I engaged with the control of the slime. Yeah. The control of the kid. Yes. Yeah. Did you learn how to Through make slime? slime? I did. And yeah. it was really awesome. And it actually, <laughs> when you put your fingers in it, it actually does relieve tension. Oh, good. <laughs> it's like a squeeze ball. Yeah. And it makes a noise. It's like. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, great. Okay. Well, good. It's great. So now you can both follow your slime rules together. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's still rules. See, yeah. there's still rules. <laughs> right. <laughs> can I tell you uh, something funny? Yeah. Um, okay, you know, remember before I was saying I have people in and out of my office? Yeah. Well, I have a girl in my office who has an amazing crush on you. Oh, yeah? Huge crush. Uh-huh. And freaked out when I was coming here. Oh, really? Yeah. What'd she say? She was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that you're going to be in the same room. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you another mug. Maybe you can decide. If, uh, oh, I'm not <laughs> giving it to her, but I'll let her drink out of it when she's in my office. <laughs> But she calls you her hall pass. I don't know if that's a Ooh, thing. Okay, yeah, I, I yeah. know what that is. <laughs> Do you know? Was she married? She's in a relationship. Uh, yeah. So they've they've discussed it. I, yeah. Apparently, I guess you're the one. <laughs> I always wonder if if those things are fantasy or if that's real. I mean, I don't know. I would just think it's kind of like a no, it's cute nice. relationship. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Yeah, it's exactly. You know, it's you know? like. But I imagine that if anyone actually acted on those, it would be problematic. I bet it would. <laughs> I mean, it's just the human nature. Exactly. But it, it's it's got to be fun and yeah, kind of sexy cute. to talk yeah. about it. It's a, I think it's a way to sort of, uh, you know, talk about something that's, you, you know, uh, that doesn't provoke jealousy or make me. It's making something fun yeah. that usually you keep to yourself. And it might amp up the romance a little bit in a way. Yeah, I'll show know? that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah Mark Marin couldn't do that. All right. Well, <laughs> it's great talking to you. I'm glad that you're okay I'm excited about the book. Thank you. Godspeed. Thank you. Jeannie Gaffigan. Thank you for having me. Pretty amazing story. Moving. Heavy. But, uh, you know, she's got a great disposition about it. The book, When Life Gives You Pairs, The Healing Power of Family, Faith, and Funny People, comes out next Tuesday, October 1st. Let's play some phase-shifting Prog rock licks. Not really prog. You know, I'm not that good. Just in, if you're here, listen to it if you want. 